0: Sometimes it's helpful to put yourself in someone else's shoes. So just try to place yourself in the following hypothetical situation. Let's suppose that God spoke to you directly, and He asked you to move to a new new location, a new country, different place, totally different. He didn't tell you where to go, but He just told you, just start traveling, and then I'll tell you when you get there. He promised to guide you. Let me ask you, though, would you be willing to go if that happened to you? Could you trust God to provide for your needs? Of course, it's hard for any of us to know exactly what we would do until we're actually faced with a situation like that, but just it's kind of fun to consider hypothetical situations sometimes. Consider the possibility. See, many of you might immediately answer, well, hey, I'd have no trouble whatsoever trusting God to provide for me. However, a strong indication of what you would actually do in this very important situation is the degree to which you're already trusting God in in the the small areas of your life, so to speak, those small trials of your life that you went through this week, how did you do this week? Did you trust God in those things? Whatever your trials were this week, how'd you face the trials? Did you respond to them with fear and worry, or did you have confidence in God's care for you, knowing that a a good God and a great God's watching over you? He knows. And he's caring and taking care of you. Well, today we're going to actually look at a guy, a man here, whose reaction to the the most difficult situations of life, well, for him it was actually characterized by faith in God. He had faith in God. He had this assurance that Hebrews 11 verse 1 talks about. He had this, this conviction, this, this settled assurance in his life that God was in control. And this man had, has much to teach us, by the way, about faith if we only have the ears to listen. And of course, we're gonna, today we're going to look at a man the Bible calls Abraham. God changed his name to Abraham. He was the, called the father of many nations. So let's see what the words of the living God have to say for us today. From Hebrews 11, we're going to start in verse 8. Verse 8. By the way, if you want to learn more about this man, Abraham, you read the first book in your Bible, uh, starting from about chapter 12 on to about chapter 25. But uh, Hebrews 11, verse 8 says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Then it tells us about Abraham's wife here in verse 11. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive... We'll stop there for today. Today our focus is going to be upon, upon this family that's mentioned here, the, the father of Israel called Abraham, and then his wife, Sarah. So I propose to you today from this text that God wants you to do something. As with all texts of Scripture, it, it's all inspired of God, all profitable here. So what do we do with this? Well, here it is. It's on the screen. That God wants you to imitate... The faith of Abraham and Sarah. Of course, don't imitate the bad stuff. Just the faith that's mentioned here in regard to Abraham and Sarah. So first of all, let's take a look at what Abraham's Abraham's, faith did. See, if you have a belief in God, it causes you to obey God. It causes you to do some things. And that's what we see going on here. Two, Two main events in which the actions of Abraham's faith are highlighted here. Notice number 1 in verse 8. It says that Abraham left his home. Abraham left his home. Now he was living there down in Ur. That's kind of in the Mesopotamia area of the world. There in the Middle East. It's a wonderful place. Abraham, by the way, didn't choose to leave home because of some personal whim. He hadn't lost his mind. He, he's not acting on some weird impulse. In fact, the Bible tells us here that God had actually commanded him to leave and had also given him a promise that, that, uh, that when, when you got to this land, I'm going to bless you. There's a promised land there. We call it Israel today. Uh, and, that, and that there would be descendants that would dwell there. And that from you, you'd have a great nation. Abraham obeyed God, <laughs> amazingly enough. He didn't even know where he's going, but he obeys. He left his home simply because God had told him to do so. Abraham was willing to leave all that was familiar to him, a very nice place. because his, Why did he do that? Because his faith rested in God's unchanging purpose to, to bless his, him and, and his descendants, his whole family, and to give him this promised land. and So as Abraham sojourned, the Bible, notice it says, he lived in tents. And he lived in tents because he had no permanent earthly dwelling place. He's looking for a city that actually had foundations, unlike his tent. Right? Any of you ever set up a tent? Right? Did any of you actually build a foundation for the tent? Before you set the tent up? No, we don't do that. Because the tent isn't permanent. It's not meant to be permanent. But Abraham's living in tents. But he has his vision, his mind, and his heart is set on something that does have foundations. And notice the text says it's built by God. See, here's the thing. If you you live in a tent, you're not going to sink your roots too deeply in that spot that you're you're currently residing there in that tent because you know it's you're you're going to move it's not something that's permanent you're going to go to some different location and even so Abraham had his attention fixed on heaven and therefore he refused to sink his roots too deeply into this world well an eternal perspective acquired from God's word is essential as for any consistent and persevering Christian life. For me a great picture of this is offered by John Bunyan when he wrote the the great allegory called The Pilgrim's Progress. Bunyan's hero in that story is named Christian, and and you'll see a correlation to Abraham here, because Christian left his home. He was living in the city of destruction, and so he left his home just like Abraham, started on this way to the the celestial city, his eternal, this eternal city. If you know the story, along the way, he encountered one hardship after another, a lot of difficulties. On one occasion, he he wandered off the path and got lost. Another time, he he got stuck in the swamp and nearly died. And uh, another time, he uh, he was he was tempted by all kinds of people, uh, just to name a few. Were uh, there was a man named Simple, and then there was someone named Sloth, and then there was someone named Presumption, who tempted him to stop the journey. And then he was—he uh, got really tired as he was climbing up the hill of difficulty, and was almost driven back at, at another point along the way by these lions that, that were kind of guarding this uh, this house. But finally, Christian entered into this house that was called House Beautiful. It was a way station where uh, travelers could rest and be equipped for the the difficult trials ahead. He received many things there from godly helpers, and, and he was prepared to go out again, and they advised him to delay just to, for a moment, just to take enough time to climb on, onto this mountain and to gaze off into the distance. and And way off in the distance... Christian was able to see the celestial city. He was able to see the eternal city of God. And there, nestled in, the, in those delectable mountains, he caught a vision of his goal, what he was looking for. It was the destination that he was seeking. That vision gave him strength for his limbs. It gave him resolve in his heart to continue on the journey and to, to go past many more difficulties. The story says, uh, along the way, he had a uh, spiritual warfare with Apollyon. Uh, There was persecution to come in the town of Vanity Fair, and he had a harrowing escape as he went through the valley of the shadow of death. Yet the vision that he had seen there of the city of heaven encouraged him. He saw a city with foundations, something that was solid, that was immovable, and it did much to encourage him to keep going forward through the long journey of trials. Do you see what Bunyan's trying to teach us? This is exactly the, the same for Abraham. Abraham lived by faith for many years in a land that wasn't his own. Well, how did he do that? Hebrews and the Holy Spirit here tell us it's because he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. And so, my friends, if you're going to persevere in life, you have to fix your eyes and your hope and your heart on that city. For that is your destination if you're a Christian. Your true home, if you are a believer in Christ, is the eternal city of God. And that's the only way you're going to make it. That is our destination, our true home even though we don't know what lies between the city of destruction and the celestial city. You don't know everything in between. So one of these main events that the Bible highlights here out of Abraham's life is he left home. Eventually he made it to the promised land that God had promised to him. And then the next event that the Bible highlights here for us, that's highlighting the faith of Abraham, is that... Abraham offered his only, not sorry, not his only son, but it was his only son through his wife Sarah. Of course, his name is Isaac. We just read about him in verse 17. This was probably the hardest test that Abraham ever faced. And it would have been difficult enough for Abraham to be forced to sacrifice his own son. But what compounded the problem here was that God... Had com- God's command to plunge the knife into his son's heart was in, in direct contradiction to God's own promise that Isaac would be the heir of God's promise. Do you see the contradiction? If I kill God's promise, then what happens to God's promise? He, he didn't quite fully understand everything, of course. And so Abraham was faced with this choice Do I cling to my understanding of God's promise and then disobey God's explicit command? Or, option number two, I can simply obey what God told told me to do. I can trust God to work out the circumstances and that His promise would still be fulfilled even though I don't know how He's going to do that exactly. Well, what did Abraham choose to do? Well, we read the text, right? Verses 17-19. through Abraham chose to obey and trust God. In fact, the text here tells us that Abraham believed, if God so chose to do, that he would even raise Isaac from the dead so that his promise for Isaac would still be accomplished. Wow, that's that's incredible faith, especially considering Abraham believed this even before there was anybody who had ever been raised from the dead. There's no examples for him to look at. I mean, this is way before Jesus' time, before Jesus ever arose from the grave. And so here again we see Abraham's unflinching faith in the unchanging purposes of God. And through his personal communion, he knew that God was immutable. That's a big theological word that just means that when you when, when you see God's immutable, it means he's unchanging he's unchangeable he can't change okay and and so he can't change in his purpose he can't change in his his his, is in his very person his very character nature can't change and so Abraham trusted God so much he was even willing to kill his only son That's amazing faith so what's the point of all this what does Abraham's faith actually teach us well Abraham's strong conviction in God teaches us at least two important lessons, okay? If you get nothing from this else from this today, remember these two points, okay? Number one, if you're a Christian, you're only a pilgrim in this world. In fact, if you're an unbeliever, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, you're still a pilgrim in this world. This world isn't it for you, it's not it for anyone. But for a believer, we, we, we know that the Scripture tells us our true citizenship is in heaven. This world is not my home, the song says. I'm just passing through. Just passing through. It's temporary. And it's because Abraham realized the truth of this principle, that he was willing to leave his home and then travel to this land of promise. He lived there as a stranger. He lived in his tents. He never put his roots deep down in that place. And The grand object of Abraham's faith was not the temporal blessings of a promised land. What was he really looking forward to? He's looking forward to the eternal happiness of being with God, being in this heavenly city that was built by God, that had true foundations. Now, some of us, this might be hard to understand, because we don't live in tents. And, and God hasn't asked, as far as I know, He hasn't asked any of you to go to some foreign land. He hasn't spoken to you directly and said, just leave leave your homeland, and then they'll tell you when you get there. That hasn't happened to most of us. So we have a hard time understanding it. So perhaps one of the best ways for us to understand what it means to be a pilgrim, a foreigner, in this world, is for us to note the following similarities here between a a traveler in a foreign land on this earth, and then our own spiritual pilgrimage toward heaven. Bunyan's helpful, but there was a a Puritan by the name of Thomas Manton who uh, helped helped us to understand this. So, so I've adapted this from some of his writings. Okay, but he says uh, that a pilgrim is one who is absent from his own country. So he's uprooted himself from his homeland, and he's traveled somewhere else. A a pilgrim is one who, while in a foreign country, is not esteemed according to the privileges of his birth and and his pedigree, or his family tree, if you will. (laughs) And the point there is, if you're a Christian, well, neither are you. Neither are you. A pilgrim in a foreign land must face some inconveniences, and so do Christians. (laughs) I'm thinking of one of the inconveniences that our family received, uprooting from the United States of America and coming all the way to New Zealand. I'm thinking it was inconvenient to lose a lot of rights and privileges of being born there and raised there, coming here and... We're living here, we're paying taxes, but we're not allowed to vote. That was really frustrating. <laughs> so that's just that's just one of the issues that we had to deal with. Uh, learning to drive on the left-hand side of the road was another inconvenience. That was difficult. It took me about two years for my mind to kind of switch and to, to get used to that. In fact, I remember driving, I was driving down Victoria Street uh, here in Hamilton one day, and I came to that weird, well, I thought it was a weird intersection. You know where you got the uh, the farming family statues right there and you know the BP's on the corner there. Anyway, I remember going to that corner there and I and uh, the light turns green and then I just pulled out over the into the street and right into the right-hand lane. And there were some cars coming directly at me and I and I'm like, "You you idiots, get, get on your side of the road." And then I'm like, "Oh, I'm the idiot who's on the wrong side of the road." You know, there's all kinds of things that foreigners have to deal with that that are different. You you go to a different country that you have to deal with those things. They're inconvenience. A pilgrim is grateful for the smallest favor, and so should we be content with whatever God chooses to bestow upon us. Pilgrim must ask directions in order to keep from taking the wrong road, <laughs> and so we must follow God's directives in Scripture to stay on the right path. God says His Word is like a lamp to our to our feet, a light to our path. We need that, and a pilgrim's heart is always in his homeland, and so is so. That's the way it is for every saint. <laughs> Where's the heart belong? It belongs in heaven, and so in order to illustrate the fundamental differences that exist between spiritual pilgrims and those who call this earth their home uh, again i want to take a little excerpt from the pilgrim's progress concerning the reasons that the the people in the in the town called vanity fair which by the way represents the world what uh, what they did to to christian they they laughed at him when when he comes into vanity fair and they anybody who would travel through and not take note of them they would laugh at so here's here's these christian travelers going to the celestial city going toward the heavenly city the people of vanity fair laughed at them and here's what uh, bunyan says he says first of all that the why are they laughing why why are they giving difficulty to christian well, the book says that the pilgrims' clothes were very different from the traders of Vanity Fair. They looked different, and so the people at the fair would uh, gaze upon the pilgrims. And some said they were fools, and some said they were outlandish men. <laughs> Another thing that the book mentions is they they wondered at their speech. So it's not just their clothes were different; they, what they said was different. Few could understand what they said, and they naturally spoke the language of Canaan, which in the Bible, Canaan represents the world. And so, as they were attempting to walk through Vanity Fair, they seemed barbarians to each other. The city traders thought, Man, these people are weird. They're different from us. Uh, The third thing the book mentions is that... uh, that which did not amuse the merchandisers was to these pilgrims. It, it, it was that the pilgrims didn't care to even look at the, the goods that they were trying to sell. They thought that was weird. And, and if they called upon them to come and to, to buy, Christian and, and his companion would they would put their fingers in their ears, and they would cry, Turn away eyes from beholding vanity and look upwards. (laughs) The point being, it signified that their trade wasn't on this earth. Their trade was really in heaven. Bunyan understood these points. Bunyan was thrown in prison for 12 years because he refused to stop preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And that illustration there is, is helpful, I think. It shows the heart of a pilgrim. It shows the heart of a pilgrim. Pilgrim's different. He's just passing through, not setting his roots there. So that's the first point we can learn from the faith of Abraham. Number two, what else can we learn? Is that the strength of our faith is revealed in the extent to which we are willing to sacrifice. How much are you willing to sacrifice? Well, we know that Abraham had a really strong faith in God. How do we know that? Because he's willing to sacrifice even his most prized possession for God and still believe that God would somehow ultimately use it for his good. In other words, we learn that from Abraham's example here that the strength of her faith is in proportion proportion, sorry, to the severity of the trial through through which it enables us to even pass through. And so I ask you, my friend, what about your faith? What about your faith? Does your life reveal that your faith in God is similar to Abraham's faith? Is your attitude toward this world and the the world to come similar to Abraham's? And does your faith stand the test? Well, look to Abraham's example to see that such a strong faith in God is possible. And so be encouraged to keep on believing God through the most difficult trials and temptations of your earthly pilgrimage, knowing that when he has tried you, the Bible says, you will come forth as gold. Well, Abraham's not the only one mentioned in this text. Let's look at Abraham's wife quickly, and then see what we can learn from her faith. So verse 11 mentions Sarah. Verse 11 says, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. So, right in the midst of Abraham, we have Abraham's wife Sarah mentioned here. And by the way, it's easy for us sometimes to believe that God will fulfill what He's promised when it seems like it's very likely for that to happen anyway. But when is your faith really tested? Often it's really tested when it seems impossible. Humanly speaking, it just doesn't seem like it's going to happen. It, Your face really tested when the odds seemed stacked against God's promises. God had promised that through this old couple, and she was barren, that she would have a son. And so Sarah is an example of somebody who at first doubted God because of this apparent impossibility of God's promise, but later she learned to trust totally in the God who is faithful. Well, you can read about this more fully again in Genesis chapter 17 and 18. But the author of Hebrews here adds some additional comments concerning the faith of Sarah, which we just read. So first of all, let's just quickly talk about what Sarah's faith did. Remember, faith is not just believing something. Faith causes you to act on that belief. This is important because, in Hebrews 11, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So, from the account we have in Genesis 18 of Sarah's reaction to God's promise, it's it's almost surprising to read here in Hebrews that Sarah gave birth to Isaac through faith. Because if you know what happens, then then you, you, you might be surprised if you didn't have what Genesis says, because... Sarah's first reaction was to laugh. because Why, why did she laugh at God's promise of, of having a son? <laughs> because it just seemed ridiculous to her that here a woman of some 90 years old could give birth to a child. I mean, after all, she and Abraham had tried to have an heir, an heir in two other ways, and God had not blessed either one of those options. First, Abraham adopted his steward, Eliezer, and as and, and has his heir, according to the custom of that day, that was normal for them to do, but later, also in agreement with the customary practice of the day, Sarah, because she wasn't able to have uh, a birth of a child, she gave her handmaid, Hagar, to her husband, Abraham, to have a child and Hagar did give birth to a son named Ishmael. But God said that wasn't the plan. Your wife Sarah is going to give a birth give birth to a son. And so God's promise was that, that Sarah would bear a son to Abraham, and it was through through that child, Isaac, that she would become this mother of nations, particularly of Israel. And so although Sarah did laugh initially, Because she doubted God's promise, we can read, fortunately, here in Hebrews 11, that she cast her doubts aside, and her faith was firm here. So why did she change her way of thinking? That's what it is. It It was a total change of way of thinking, but why? It's because she changed her attitude toward God's promise. She understood God's promise. She heard the words, but she just... She doubted at first. And so, even though at first she refused to believe God's promise until she analyzed it to see if it might really be fulfilled. In other words, what I'm saying is this if if she did not think it was possible for it to actually happen, she would not believe it. But later she realized that God's promises are not to be placed under those kind that kind of scrutiny. But they're to be accepted. She, she realized they're to be believed no matter what you might think of them. And the reason she changed her attitude toward God's promises is she changed her view of God. Do you see how that works? Your theology, your theology is always going to drive your methodology. In other words, what you believe, you're going to live that out. What you believe about God is going to come to be So previously, she had thought of him as someone who might not be able to overcome these obstacles, might not be able to do what he had said he's going to do. But notice the text now says that she judged God faithful who had promised. So now God goes from being unfaithful, oh, oh, God's faithful, I can believe that. She believed in a God who could be trusted to be faithful and true to every promise. And it didn't matter what hindrances were in the way, what difficulties or obstacles might seem to be in the way. She's overlooking those and looking at the God who can overcome them. So what do we learn from Sarah's faith? What does Sarah's faith teach us? Number one, that God controls every circumstances in our lives. Yes, you heard that right. Every circumstance in your life. And although the birth of a child seems to be just according to natural processes, who's ultimately in control of every child's birth? God. God's the one who made Sarah barren in the first place. God's the one who opened Sarah's womb to, give, to, to, to bear a child at 90 years old. Abraham's 100 years old. He's not able to have children either, but God's, it's amazing God's doing all this. And God's in control, both when Sarah's young and can't bear children, and he's, he's in control when they're old and, able to, and and now giving birth to a son named Isaac. And Sarah finally came to the re- realization that God's in control of her life, and that he could do as he pleased with her according to his timetable, not hers. Her responsibility is what? To submit. To submit to God's sovereignty and rule in her life. And so I ask you, how are you doing? (laughs) Are you submitting to God's control in your life? Or do you find yourself constantly complaining about your circumstances? Or questioning if God is able to do what he said he would do? Well, that will reveal a lot. of so What do you really believe about God? Do you believe that God is in control of all the circumstances of your life? If you don't believe that, you need, you need to change your theology of who God is. Because God is a God who is sovereign, who does reign supreme over all of his creation. The second thing we learn from Sarah's faith here is there is nothing too difficult for God to accomplish. God made Sarah. God made Sarah's womb. God makes every child. And the question we find in the Bible is, is anything too hard for the Lord? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is, of course there isn't. <laughs> and so that question, is anything too hard for the Lord, it, it is attached to every one of God's promises. No set of circumstances could ever prove to be. Too difficult or insurmountable for God. He is the Lord God omnipotent, the Bible says. Omnipotent just means he's all-powerful. Nothing can prevent him from accomplishing his promises and fulfilling his good pleasure, the Bible says. And so, we learn Sarah. what's, What's Sarah doing? She thought it was impossible for her to become a mother at 90 years old. But she soon learned that with God, nothing is impossible. That's an important lesson to learn as you go through life. Have you learned this lesson? Maybe it's a lesson we have to keep learning sometimes, right? Do not allow yourself to doubt God's power. He is able to accomplish His promises and purposes, my friends. He is able. Uh, The third thing we can learn from Sarah's faith is we must make use of God's promises. See, it's one thing to believe that God's made promises, but then if you don't do anything with them, what good are they to you? And so as Sarah claimed God's promise to her, she used it to strengthen her life and her faith. And we have to learn to put God's promise to work for us as well. Let's just think of some examples. Take some of the following ways, just as some examples of, how you can effectively use god 's promises in your own life, for example uh, here 's where the kind of where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, kind of bring the hay down to the sheep, so to speak, for example, use god's promises to encourage yourself when you need comfort. see it's very easy for us to forget god's promises. And if you don't know them, by the way, let me encourage you to learn them. Learn them. If you don't know what God's promises are, I'm I'm more than happy to help direct you in the right direction. And so one of the things I find helpful is I have them, I actually have some of God's promises written out in my office. And so when I am tempted to not believe God and His promises, they're staring me right in the face. They're looking at me right there. About eye level when I stand up, <laughs> and they tell me all this good news about God and His promises, and they remind me of who God is and what He said He's going to do. I need that comfort. Just like you, I can be tempted to despair. And Satan comes at me just like we sang earlier. He tempts me to despair, and he tells me of the guilt within. But what's the solution? You need to look. Keep looking to Jesus Christ. Look at God's promises. They'll encourage you. Here's something else. Use God's promises to remind you of your eternal possessions. You have an, an eternal inheritance if you're a believer. And, and it's only because the Bible says, in Romans 8, you are a joint heir with Jesus Christ. You know, In other words, a joint heir... You get all the same rights and privileges that Jesus has. Whatever Jesus' inheritance is, you have the same. And if you don't understand what that inheritance is, you're missing out. That is really good news. It's a remind yourself of those eternal possessions. Number three, use God's promises to cause you to be thankful when you feel as if you have nothing for which to be thankful this is one of my problems there's times where i'm not thankful why why am i not thankful why when i'm grumbling and complaining and i'm worrying what's my problem i'm meditating on the wrong content i am meditating on the wrong things i'm thinking wrong I need to change my way of thinking. I need to look to God. I need to look at his promises. That's reality, not my bad way of thinking. <laughs> so I've got to use them to change my thinking. And, and when you do, then you become thankful. But then you can be like the Apostle Paul, who's, you remember that story in the book of Acts? Where he's, where he's at Philippi, and he's been preaching the gospel, and so they catch him, and then, and then they beat him. And then they throw him in prison, and it's midnight. He's just been beaten. He's in the stocks, and he's, he's crying out, Oh, woe is me. This is terrible. Why did this happen to me? I'm going to grumble and complain and worry. No, those of you who know your Bibles know that didn't happen at all. That's not the story. What's he doing? He's singing praises to God. He's thankful <laughs> that I can suffer with Christ and that this life isn't all there is. How can someone do that? It's because they're not looking at the here and now, are they? There's something more and bigger and better, isn't there? Another thing to consider is, use God's promises to give you confidence in bringing your petitions to God in prayer. Do you really believe that there is a God who hears your prayers? I can go to God 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He's never on holiday. He's never sleeping. And the only time He will turn me off is when I regard sin in my heart. Then He turns me off. He won't listen to me then. But the rest of the time, He's hearing me. It's the same for every Christian. That's good news. I have confidence because my great high priest, Jesus Christ... As I pray, I'm going through him to my heavenly father, and I know he hears. Those are great promises. Another one to consider is use God's promises to motivate yourself to obedience. If you have a hard time obeying, you might have a motivation issue. You need to be motivated. One of the things that's going to motivate you is God's promises. Certainly motivated Abraham. He did some pretty radical stuff, didn't he? Leaving his home, nearly plunged a knife through his son's heart. That's pretty radical. What would cause someone to do that? He's motivated to obey God because of God's promises. So I ask, what are you expecting from God's promises? Is it just things that appear to be likely to happen? Or are you trusting God to supply everything he said he would do? (laughs) What are you believing in? What are you trusting? How large is your container that you're bringing before God, if you will? Right? Uh, Yeah. Are you just bringing a little one, expecting, well, you know, God might fill up this little thing? Or are you bringing the biggest thing that you have, saying, God, fill it? (laughs) What, what, What do you believe about your God? Well... May God enable us to have faith in his purposes like Abraham did and have faith in his promises as Sarah did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that you are a God who is worthy of all worship and praise and worthy to be trusted because you are a faithful God. What you say you're going to do, you always do. What you say you're not going to do, you don't do. You fulfill your promises. We've seen it over and over again through through your holy word here, and people like Abraham and Sarah give us faith. May we have a confidence. May we have, as Hebrews eleven says, may we may we have a a, a blessed assurance in things hoped for, and a conviction of things not seen, that there is a heavenly city whose foundations were made by you. May that be so real to us that we live like it is real. So give us that faith. Enable us to believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.